Welcome to History 21, the podcast, a production of the Anoka County Historical Society, sharing the stories and audio journeys from our county's past and present. Hello, Rebecca. Oh, wait, it's me, Cassie. I'm filling in. Hello, everybody. You could pretend to be Rebecca. Give us your best impression. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm so happy to be here. Wonderfully excited for this podcast today. It's going to be a great time. Is that good? It, it was like listening to a mirror. <laughs> this week has been flying past. I've been in the middle of cemetery tours and trying to figure out where people are buried. Out of context, that might be a weird sentence. <laughs> what have you been up to? Um, oh, man. Uh, indeed, the week is flying by. I have been um, swimming in backlog, trying to uh, get through all of the donations that have happened since I've been here, um, on and off, um, and now full-time since January. Um, so yeah, I've been coming across a few interesting things. <gasps> do tell, do tell. All right. Um, let's see. There was a gentleman who dropped off. Uh, all he told me was um, some old newspapers and things um, in this tote, and I hadn't gotten around to looking at it until this week, and I found a Fidelity uh, Lodge roster. So it's from the Independent Order of Oddfellows. Um, and that was his and things, apparently, um, which is something we would absolutely love to have to have in our collection. We love a good roster. Yes, yes, and it's from the 50s, and yeah, it was kind of a wonderful little nugget of awesomeness to come across. So if your family was in the Odd Fellows in the 1950s, they're, see on, us. they're on that list. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Likely. Well, now we have the podcast episode. Indeed. Do you know what this one's about? Um, Coon Rapids Dam. Yes. Ah, <laughs> nailed it. Yeah, I was talking to Jane, and she apparently lives in one of the houses, so I got a little bit of the lowdown, but not, not a whole lot. Jane is a volunteer here, and uh, her voice appears in this podcast. So it's all about the Coon Rapids Dam. Uh, you'll hear a lot of my voice because I'm setting up the history and whatnot, and then weave in a few voices from people that actually worked there in the early days or have lived in one of the dam houses that still exist. So that's the teaser. Yes, very cool. Shall we get into it? Yes, let's do it. On February 4th, 1898, the Anoka Herald newspaper reported a bill to give the Twin City Transit Company permission to dam the Mississippi River below Coon Rapids passed the House. So the big scheme is not only possible, but probable. The promise of a dam brought with it dreams of growth in the area. Anoka Union newspaper described it as a great dam project that would bring untold benefit to Anoka and Anoka County as well as the entire state. Trolley lines using the power would be built straight away and they estimated the city would grow to 20,000 people 
in just a few years. A couple of things to keep in mind about those predictions. In 1898, Coon Rapids didn't refer to a city. It wasn't a city yet. The name referred to a specific place along the Mississippi River in what was officially Anoka Township. It wasn't until 1952 that the area incorporated as the village of Coon Rapids, but that's a story for a different time. And only approximately 360 people lived in the area. Even if you add in the population of the city of Anoka, you get fewer than 5,000 people living in the area. It's a pretty big stretch to grow to 20,000 people in just a few years. Even though plans were moving to build a dam, it was a slow process. Residents of Anoka and Hennepin County would have to wait nearly 15 years before they could see a dam across the Mississippi River. Let me introduce to the story the Dunn family. In 1888, John Dunn, along with his wife Anne and children William, Thomas, Patrick, and John Jr. and Martin, <laughs> lived and worked approximately 633 acres in Anoka Township between the Mississippi River, the railroad tracks, and west of Coon Creek. Building a dam is an immense construction project, and the process of harnessing the power of a river would inevitably alter the land around it. Someone quoted, Mr. Dunn at Coon Creek practically holds the key to the situation, as his farm would be damaged more than any other piece of property along the river. If the dam were built below his farm, he would lose all of his rich bottomlands and his valuable clay beds would be seriously damaged. In fact, the Dunns had been dealing with the damage floods from log jams and log dams had been causing to some of their land along the Mississippi River already. In 1911, William Dunn, John's eldest son, brought the issue to court in a case against the Mississippi and Rum River Boom Company. The case alleges that the Boom Company's logs obstructed the channel and that about three acres of lands were eroded, washed away, and completely destroyed. In conclusion, defendants ordered to pay damages to the Dunn family in the sum of $2,500. Because of this case, we know a few things. The land in this area of the Mississippi River was being dammed already to some extent unintentionally. The case contains transcripts of witnesses describing the area and how the Mississippi River normally flowed. While the case against the Boom Company is interesting by itself, this is a podcast about the Coon Rapids Dam. And reading closely in the transcript, this case gives us an exact date for the sale. In one portion of William Dunn's testimony, a lawyer confirms, as I understand, you, on or about October the 1st, 1910, 169 acres of that farm sold. And William responded with a succinct, yes, sir. There were some more delays, but finally, by December 1912, 50 men were hired by the Mississippi River Power Company to begin construction. The workforce grew to around 1,000 men, 75% of whom were from Anoka County and who worked on the dam over the next year. By the next December, one year later in 1913, it was nearly complete. The Anoka County Historical Society has a few voices preserved of those who were working the dams in those early days and recorded by an unknown interviewer in 1980. Earl Eirich worked as an electrician for Northern States Power from 1920 to 1967 and talked about how the dam was initially built. 
building of the Coon uh, Rapids Dam was done in a day when uh, we didn't have steam shovels uh, or any of the modern equipment we have today. Uh, a friend of mine, Bill Smith, uh, was telling me that he uh, helped excavate the uh, uh, footing for the dam by uh, using two horses and a scoop to scoop out the gravel and the sand and uh, most of the shoveling had to be done with uh, men and uh, regular long-handled shovels and the dam uh, was built in a, a very uh, early way of doing business. They uh, uh, did not uh, drive too many piling and the only piling they had to drive was wood piling. So therefore, that dam was never uh, really a secure dam. Uh, then in 1920, I started with the United States Power Company uh, as an electrician, and I was uh, stationed at the Coon Rapids Dam for several months installing new electrical equipment. The dam itself is made of earth and solid concrete resting on steel and wood piling. Founded on river sand and a hard layer of firm clay subsoil over bedrock. In the end, the workers poured approximately 42,000 cubic feet of concrete and used 800 carloads of crushed rock to raise the water level of the Mississippi River by 15 feet. Bill Plum was the superintendent on the job. Actually, according to the 1920 census, Bill Plum was the construction foreman at the electrical plant. Stuart Laird was considered the supervisor, but continue, Earl. And uh, he really enjoyed his work. He knew, uh, he knew how to build dams, he knew how, how to uh, uh, get the best out of men. He had always a good relationship with the men, and uh, always joking with them. He was a real good friend of mine. and. Uh, this particular uh, dam uh, uh, was on this Mississippi River, and the Mississippi River would flood every spring. And uh, we didn't have all the modern equipment to, to build the real good coffer dams. And one spring, we had an unusually large amount of water coming up. And these coffer dams, you know what they are, made out of logs and timbers. And uh, the uh, water washed one of the main Crawford dams, which is about eight by eight, washed it up. So therefore, if they didn't stop that, they would take some of the other ones alongside it. So Bill got the men all organized. He said, come on, we got to stop that leak. So he says, but try to go up there to the dormitories and get the mattresses. And uh, they had the men slept right at the job, and they ate it on the job. And uh, he said, get them down here as fast as you can on the run, double. And he says, another ten of you go out there and cut some brush. A lot of that uh, ten feet sapling. He said, we'll throw them mattresses in there and the saplings and we'll try to stop this leak. If we don't, the whole thing will all the way across the river, river will go. So they did. They got the mattresses and they put in a few mattresses in the saplings and finally stopped the leak. And then when the river did recede, they made a permanent job. That was one of the things that uh, Bill told me uh, 
I wasn't there. It was the old family. But when they were building it in 1911, that always appealed to me as, as quite a, uh, one of the critical parts of building the dam. Those mattresses were coming from the bunkhouses built for workers. In fact, with around 1,000 men working on the dam, plus their families, a whole small town sprung up around the dam. The bunkhouses, mess halls, a hospital of sorts, billiards, parlor, bar, dance hall, plus some houses. Bill Smith worked at the dam from 1919 at the age of 23 years old until he was 64 in 1960. He worked as an electrical operator, and he remembered some of that small town. Uh, I heard that when they had the, when they first were building the dam, they had big barracks or something for the people who were living. Oh, well, they had a regular little town right there. They had, they had everything. Can you tell me something about that? Had some houses all built along there, and some of the men that were in charge of the job, but oh, they had houses built along the bank road there on that hill. And uh, they had uh, big feet in places, and places for them to sleep. It said also in some old papers that when they built the first houses, that they, when they had those barracks for all the people who live in and stuff, when they first started the dam, that there were separate quarters, one place for the building for the Italians and one place for the school. Oh, yeah, they had them had a, had a, had a, had a pushed off, and they had their own mess hall. They had their own mess halls, too? Yeah, their own mess halls. Oh, so they didn't all eat together? They didn't all eat together, no. Oh, because they couldn't speak? No. Well, they had the ones that they liked to live together, you see. Yeah, they had the two best, two best songs, I guess. And, uh, one bunch of foreigners eat, one and the other. And then they had a lot of small, like I said, they had a lot of small cabins around there. Built in. Some, of, some of the guys even built their own over there. Would just lived in. Their own cabins? Yeah. <laughs> Um, where that little town was, um, they said that there was a hospital and some other businesses there. Uh, do you remember a hospital being Oh, they had, they had uh, filled it there where they had a place to take care of them. If anybody got hurt, they bring them in and take care of them to get there. And oh, so was it yeah. a hospital or just kind of a first aid? Oh, it's just, a, just a building and a bed and stuff. You called it out. They didn't keep anybody there. They just get, bring them in there, take care of them until they get the ambulance. Um, they also said that they had a pool hall there, a bar. Uh, can you tell me, were those places very big? Oh, no, there was nothing very big. They were good size, they cut them. They had the office building there, you see, that's the hospital, what they had there to help take care of everybody got hurt to them. And like you ever better get cut or anything like that, of course you could fix them up the people that would do that. They had a bar there and everything. After completion of the dam, the small town slowly disappeared. But there are still seven houses left. My name is Jane Lamusca. I'm a volunteer at the Anoka County Historical Society, and I happen to have the great honor to live in a dam house. I live at 1711 99th Avenue Northwest, which is one of the original dam houses that was moved off into the neighborhood in probably the 1960s. I purchased it in 1992. We closed on New Year's Eve, and so we moved in 
January 1st of 1993, and we still live there. What's it like to live in the area today? Well, 99th is a straight little street that is bordered on the south by the 400 plus acres of the Coon Rapids Regional Dam Park. And so I sit in my living room, drink my coffee, and watch all the deer come across into my yard, and the turkeys, an occasional possum. And raccoons raid the grease trap on our grill. Quite often we find the aluminum pan with the grease drippings out in the middle of the yard. What do you know about the dam houses? Well, I happen to have been a friend of Roy Downs who grew up in one of them because he worked for NSP that ran the dam and I'm good friends of the family. And so he told me, we've, we've made a lot of changes to the house and so he and his wife, he was in his, well into his 80s. Um, I had them come over and we did a tour of the house and so he told me what where things used to be and because we always wondered because there's one bathroom upstairs with two bedrooms and then on the main level there's basically a living room dining combination and a kitchen and another room and then a three-quarter bath it has a shower and a toilet but when he lived there that little three-quarter bath didn't open into the bedroom it opened into the kitchen and it was a pantry the bathroom was upstairs and um, a former owner had incorporated the big front porch into the living area so we have quite a large living room for quite a small house so basically it's five room house two bedrooms up a bedroom kitchen and the living room on the main floor and a basement of course but that doesn't count Roy had said there were eight houses seven worker houses and then one house for the boss and they all got moved off into the neighborhood and I've managed to find six houses and the superintendent's house. So total of seven around the neighborhood. Well, these were kit houses. They brought them in on the, as, as a kid on the railroad and you know brought them down and then they built them. Do you know who lived in your house originally? I do because I found a little receipt in the wall in our first remodeling for C. McArdle. And he was trading at Palmer's store, which was on Main Street, according to the slip, in 1935. He was an oiler for the hydroelectric generating dam. Roy Downs, who Jane talked to, and his family lived in the dam house. And later in life, Roy worked for 37 years at the Riverside Power Plant in Northeast Minneapolis and learned about how the dam he lived next to and played around as a boy really worked. Well, we moved to the dam in 1939, late 39 or 40, I, I just don't remember the exact date. But, well, I, went to L.O. Jacobs School for eighth grade and I enlisted in the Navy in fall of 1943. Mm -hmm. So I was there from 40 until 43 myself. Mm -hmm. My dad lived there until he retired, which was later on. <coughs> on, the, on the dam there was 28 gates you know, to maintain water level. 
And in the powerhouse, there was five generators. Each one of those generators would put out about what our windmills put out today. They weren't real large, but in the summer when the river was low, they'd keep one generator on the line, put, wow. making electricity, because the river would get too low to run all five. In the spring, when there was uh, high water, they'd run all five generators. And if there got to be too high on the lower side, it would slow the generators down so it wasn't making as much power as, you know, it was acting like a brake almost because uh, the water couldn't flow through the, the generators like uh, it normally should. The, uh, those gates at that time were those metal gates, there was 28 gates, and they'd maintain the river level at a, a certain level, or try to, and then they'd raise the gates. The more water on the upper side, the more they'd have to raise the gates. Uh, they, somebody had to go out and either crank them up or use electric motor to raise the gate up so that the water could flow. No, I, I used to go down and watch what they were doing at the dam. There'd be two people on, on a shift down there. They worked eight-hour shifts. And uh, there'd be what they called an operator and an oiler. And the operator would take care of running the uh, generator up and down, a phase them in. And the oiler, he'd have to go around and maintain, you know, some of the equipment on each shift. Well, then during the day, they had uh, more people working, uh, just maintaining different equipment. And in the summer, when the river got really low, like I said, they'd only be down to one generator, but they'd have to go out and they used to put cinders on those gates to seal them so that they wouldn't leak, holding as much water as they could. And uh, when you say a, a cinder? A well, cinder. It, it was ash from our, our power plant, or the big power right. plants. Right. Yeah, coal ash is what it so, was. Well, so, how would you put, how would you seal it? I mean, what would it, what would the material look like when you're trying to seal it? Oh, it was small, almost like stones or rocks. And uh, uh, I don't remember what plant they got the, the ash from, but that's what they used. They had somebody go out and they had a special boat that they used at that time and they had pour that stuff down to seal the, the gate so that it wouldn't leak. Leaks are not a dam's friend. Earl Eirich recalled a similar leak soon after he started working there in 1920, and their method of repairing it left an impression. Uh, there was a, a leak under the dam, and they were checking to see how much of the leak there was and where it was at. The uh, company, Northern States Power Company, company driver came out to the dam with an old-style heavy diver's suit. Big, big lead weights on his shoes, 
and a two-man hand-operated air compressor. He had a belt equipped with different color aniline dyes, and he had a crew of 12 men. He placed the men on the dam, down, on the downstream end of the dam, spaced at regular intervals from the east side to the west side. The driver, the diver, Walter Coyne, asked the electrical department to turn the two cranks on the air compressor. The diver submerged on the upstream side of the dam and on the east side. When his feet were on the bottom, he opened the bottle of dye and released the contents at the base of the dam. Then he did that same thing at regular intervals until he was on the west side of the dam. They found the leak and plugged it with cement. Yeah, I, uh, uh, they asked me to, uh, and, an and another electrician, to help turn these cranks. And they told us at what speed and told us not to stop because that man was depending on that air down there. So in those days, they didn't have this type of suits that we have nowadays. And uh, so it was uh, about uh, two hours that we had to, and then there was other electricians there too, and they helped spell us off. Turn these cranks at a certain speed, they get the right, and there was a little gauge there, so we get the proper amount of air to the diver. Yes, it was. Uh, it hard work about every 15 minutes we changed men because they, but it, compressors are pretty hard to turn. And then the die came on, where the die came on through down below, and then they just found that spot and then they went up above that. Right, uh -huh. and then the and the, the the bottles that he had on his belt were of different colors. It was purple, red, green, yellow, and so therefore they could trace just where this particular dye was released and where it came out. And it, in this case, it didn't go straight through, it went diagonal. And uh, they lost quite a bit of water there, and if they wouldn't have done that, they would have lost the dam. It gradually get bigger and bigger. So they plugged cement on the front side on, of the dam? On the front side, the upstream side of the dam. Did they just block off the copper dams? That's what they did, yeah. So they had a dry area to work in, and then they had what they call a pumpcrete. And that pumpcrete delivers the concrete at a terrific pressure. So there was probably about a foot open space from there, 40, 50 feet down underneath the apron. So they put this great big 8-inch hose, stuffed it down in that hole as far as they could get it, and then they started that concrete, and then they put their mixture, concrete mixture, down and forced it at about 100 pounds pressure underneath that dam. And, uh, and then it was a type of concrete that was designed for curing, it, even though there was a lot of water around it. Hydraulic cement, and that's plugged the dam, that's that the leak. Winter poses a different threat to the dam and surrounding buildings. In front of the powerhouse, they had, uh, they're like icebreakers. You know, in case the ice happened to come towards the, the building where the powerhouse is, yeah. Yeah. It, it would break that up. Now, was these, were these mounted into the 
soil under the river then? Yes, yes. They had big rocks inside of them. And, uh, you know, they were permanently, they were, they were permanent there. So the, the theory would be that the big sheets of ice would push the, the near sheets of ice up on here. Yeah, the they would break would it up. Yeah, yeah. That was the idea of that. Uh, in the spring, when the river was going to start breaking up, they would have people come and cut ice in front of the dam up, I don't remember how far up, if it was a quarter of a mile or something like that. Uh, you know, it was a long ways up from the dam. They'd cut and then dynamite that into little pieces and then sluice it through the, the gates at the dam so that by the time the, the river ice actually opened up, you know, and it, uh, to come on down to go through and open up the whole river, they'd have time to go out and open all these 28 gates up and then the just sluice that all right through. So I, you know, I had seen him dynamite and do all of that. Irene McAloney's husband, Kenneth, worked at the dam from 1913 until 1959. One of his jobs was dynamiting. Eventually, Spring also would take care of the ice problem, and he made sure Irene saw the resulting show. In the spring of the year, usually any time after the 1st of April, they begin to be extremely worried about uh, the uh, ice jams forming and uh, taking out the wind. So they began to uh, uh, keep real good track of the area. And then, then uh, all of a sudden, someday, one day, my um, gentleman called home and he'd say, well, the ice is starting to move. And uh, we would... Uh, go down to the river wherever we could see the best. And we never saw anything more exciting anyway in this area than when that, those ice jams began to move. And they just moved so swiftly down the river and uh, the gates had been opened so cleverly that the whole thing would just rush right out and uh, in a matter of a few hours' time, the river was turned to it again. There were lots of jobs keeping the dam running. After construction was finished at the dam in 1914, around 200 men stayed on to keep it up and going. At first, the Northern Mississippi River Power Company furnished electricity to the area, and in 1916, they sold it all to Northern States Power Company. Can I ask what your starting wages were when you started? 50 cents an hour. 50 cents an hour. We work six days a week, ten hours a day. So you got uh, thirty dollars a week. Yeah. No coffee breaks. Did you work and have it? And these uh, men that were they were operators. They operated the the machinery. See, there were times at night when they uh, didn't need as much power. They'd shut these huge generators down. They'd build up a water reserve during the night. So that next morning when they needed a lot, a lot of power for their factories and for their lighting downtown offices, then they would start these generators, generally about 7 in the morning. And these operators would 
that was their job. They were on uh, eight-hour shifts. There's only two men on a ship. Two men on a ship. And talking to Bill Smith, he said they worked seven, uh, seven days a week. That's right. Yeah. And then, uh, then they also had one man that was a rack man. He would have to rake the rack. Oh, yeah, they had uh, racks in front of the generators, mm -hmm. metal racks, and they had to rake those every so often. Mm -hmm. uh, pieces of steel that had about two inches between them, and as the water poured into the turbines, they had to prevent logs and debris from falling up the turbines, otherwise these turbines might get stuck. So, and then this uh, rack would become filled with branches and these rackmen would have a special rate, and they'd start that right at the bottom of the dam, long handle, and then they'd pull that rake up and bring all that debris up to the top. And then they had a platform, and they'd take that debris then and take it over at it down, down river, so it wouldn't get all up in the racking. They generally had two men on that, just during the day, because there wasn't enough there during the evening. With the flow of the water. But if they didn't do that, there would be enough brush and debris so that pretty soon the water wouldn't be able to go through the turbines and it would flow right over the turbine. And once in a while there'd be fish come in there and they'd accidentally, you know, take a few fish out to take home. And, uh, On December 31st, 1966, the Northern States Power Company officially discontinued operations of the Coon Rapids Dam. It just wasn't strong enough to meet the demands a booming suburbia was putting on it. And in 1969, it became part of the Hennepin County Park Reserve District to be turned into a public park, which we now know as the Coon Rapids Dam Regional Park. The current dam measures 2,150 feet just 490 feet short of a half mile, and is part of a 446 acre park with an extensive trail system. You can find people skiing, snowshoeing, biking, running, walking. There is prairie restoration areas, picnic areas, and even one of the original metal gates Roy described that you can view. It's a big piece of Anoka County history right in our backyard. Read all about it in the Anoka County Library Minute. Hello, my name is Diana Nurberg, a librarian with the Anoka County Library, and this is your Library Minute. First we have Coon Rapids, a fine city by a dam site, History of Coon Rapids, Minnesota, 1849-1984, by Leslie Randalls Gilland. Aside from the cleverly worded title, another reason to check out this book is the chronological detailing of over a hundred years of the city's formation. Multiple aspects are covered, from the building of the dam to the government operations like finance, fire department, parks, and more. Illustrations throughout the book help to further give readers a sense of the times. Next, we have Holding Back the River, The Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways by Tyler J. Kelly. Author Tyler Kelly spent two years traveling the Midwest to gather stories from people who rely on rivers for their lives and livelihoods. Their stories highlight the conundrum facing our country, that while the economy and environmental health continue to ebb and flow, the state of our infrastructure, that is, our rivers, levees, locks, and dams, has remained rather stagnant. Next we have Oh Mighty Mississippi 
by Melissa Vochelka, a poetically written ode to the wonders of the Mississippi River. Written as a conversation held between the river and various wildlife living in and amongst the river, through this picture book, children will come to understand the river as the living thing it is. Dreamlike paintings of the water and its surroundings add to the sense of wonder. Finally, we have Anoka County Park Packs. A collaboration of Anoka County Parks Department and Anoka County Library, this collection of park backpacks was created to encourage outdoor recreation, nature appreciation, conservation, and creativity. Included in the pack upon checkout is an Anoka County Parks Department parking pass, perfect for visiting the Coon Rapids Dam, leaf rubbing plates, jumbo crayons, bug viewer, field guides for Minnesota birds, trees, wildflowers, wildlife, and more. Check out or reserve one with your library card. Find these resources and more from your local Anoka County Library. Happy learning! Get those library cards and reserve your copy today. Direct links to these books and more can be found in the episode show notes at anokacountyhistory.org. Have you learned everything about the dam that you could possibly ever want? Indeed. I've helped you out in doing this because I had to digitize some of the cassette tapes. Well, so all of the cassette tapes that <laughs> I used for this episode. So little by little, we're, we're digitizing the collection. Yes, indeed. And that's always an enormous help um, just because I'm only one person and I can't possibly get through it all. So yeah, this one piece of the collection, we can put a little bow on then for digitization. Yeah, and cassettes and VHSs, they don't last forever. No, uh, they do not. Um, in fact, in my back room, I'm actually dealing with um, some old cassette tapes and VHSs that have um, deteriorated to the point where I think they are unsavable. Um, typically what happens is they start to deteriorate and then they smell like vinegar and unless you can remedy that, um, it's pretty much a loss. And sometimes in the collection, that's, that's what happens. So it always makes my heart happy to know that um, different portions of the collection are getting digitized, even if it is piece by piece. It's all. Yeah, so people look in your closets and your back rooms for those VHS and cassette tapes that grandma or grandpa spoke over or, or whatnot. And yeah. Get them digitized because they're not going to be around forever. Yeah, they will not last forever. Keep them in a dark spot. Low humidity is also a good good uh, practice. Digitize them. Donate a copy to the Historical Society if they're in Oka County related. You know. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks for hanging out with us, Cassie. And maybe we'll See you next time? Yes, maybe. Could be regular, or at least pop in from time to time. Excellent. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Yeah, thank you. If you have a question, want to visit our show notes page for each episode, or would like to share your own story, go to anokacountyhistory.org. Help History 21, the podcast, reach more ears by subscribing and reviewing on your podcast provider. We're all over social media, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for all those who scroll by. And for our Vault members, you can find special access to podcast extras as well as the latest digital resources at History 21 The Vault, located on our website. Remember, the present is the past of the future.